Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at CancerCare. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Sonia, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Understanding the Role of Immunotherapy in Treating Cancer. And this is a very important topic. It's one that we know many of you are interested in. We have lots of you on the call today. Um, and uh, and today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations. And really because of the topic and, and your interest in this topic, um, we have so many of you on the call today. Um, we have over 400 participants on the call today from the United States, both from urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from many countries, from Canada, Dominican Republic, Egypt, Mexico, New Zealand, Norway, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Sweden, Syria, and Pakistan. So really, it's a bit of a global call, actually, I would say, um, and from all over the world. Um, also, today's program is part one of understanding the role of immunotherapy in treating cancer. And part one is new trends in immunotherapy. So this is what you're going to hear today about new trends. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and a grant from Genentech. I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. Dr. Chris is attending physician, thoracic oncology service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Christ is going to present overview of immunotherapy, including harnessing the immune system in treating cancer in the context of COVID-19, how immunotherapy offers new treatment approaches, the role of clinical trials, and immunotherapy in lung cancer and clinical trial updates. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, and uh, thank you all for uh, getting on this call today. Uh, it's, it's truly a strange and uh, uh, unsettled time. Uh, and uh, I know all of you uh, facing cancer yourselves or in a, in a loved one uh, have had so many issues and struggles. Uh, and uh, COVID-19 has just added a, uh, another huge issue and another obstacle uh, to your struggle. And uh, I want to talk a bit about that today. Uh, and uh, I'll start, though, by focusing on the uh, original topic of this talk, and that is to talk about immunotherapy. Uh, I think we've been uh, so blessed by uh, having the emergence of uh, immune treatments uh, to fight uh, various cancers. I'm a lung cancer specialist, and I think you'll find in the course of the call I'm going to be uh, ultimately talking about lung cancer issues, so forgive me. Uh, but the truth of the matter is I think the issues that the people with lung cancer face are very, very similar to those faced by other cancers. Uh, and I want to just talk a little bit about the immune system first. Uh, this is probably something you didn't learn about in school. We really didn't know a lot about it, at least when I was in school. But to me, I, I'd like to maybe call the immune system our uh, homeland security. Uh, this system was devi uh, devised uh, to 
take care of any kind of evader, invader, either uh, domestic or, or foreign. And the truth is, uh, every second uh, there are bacteria around us, uh, but our bodies are constructed both in terms of their uh, surfaces and also the immune system that uh, underlies them to uh, get rid of invaders. Uh, and it's been a great hope in that we could take that same kind of idea that invaders that are repelled by our innate ability to do so through our immune system, that we could somehow harness that. And in truth, over history, we've really done a very good job at that. I think we all learned uh, uh, about the uh, uh, benefits of uh, vaccination uh, and how that can prevent uh, infectious diseases. Uh, and many plagues, uh, polio uh, to my generation, uh, eradicated by the development of an effective vaccine. The other thing that's worth mentioning here while we're on the topic of cancer is vaccines ha can be helpful in preventing cancer as well. We now have a vaccine against HPV, the human papillomavirus. This vaccine is recommended to all uh, young adults uh, and can prevent cervical and other cancers in both men and women. Uh, and it just shows the power of a vaccine here, not just to treat, but to prevent cancer. The essence of the immune system is um, it's twofold. It's uh, things in the blood, proteins in the blood that can uh, seek out and kill invading cells, and also cells themselves that, that can attack and kill uh, invaders, both infectious ones and cancer. I'm, I'm going to talk mainly today about um, the uh, checkpoint inhibitors, the drugs that we have commonly available to treat cancers. But a couple of other things are worth mentioning. Uh, one is vaccines. One is what so-called CAR T-cell therapies, where cells are taken from a patient, uh, engineered and revved up to attack their kind of cancer and reinfused into the patient, so-called CAR T-cells. We also have things called monoclonal antibodies. Uh, the body generates antibodies to attack and, and kill invaders. What we've been able to do now is create antibodies that attack uh, various uh, targets, various proteins on cancer cells and, and can kill them. And the other uh, really cool thing is that we've been able to take these antibodies now and attach uh, cancer-killing drugs to them. Uh, the best example of that is a drug called uh, TDM1 or Casidla. Uh, Adotrastuzumabimpantene by breast cancer, another one, another one just uh, approved uh, within the last few months, a drug called NHER2. And what these drugs do, they contain a protein, a monoclonal antibody that finds the cancer cell and delivers a very potent and deadly chemotherapy directly to the cancer cell and the cancer cell that might be nearby, so-called uh, antibody drug conjugates. Uh, we have several of them approved now in a lot of different cancers, more and more in the pipeline. Um, uh, and what has really changed this uh, um, landscape uh, is the availability of drugs that can unleash our own immune cells and the so-called T-cell checkpoint inhibitors. I should mention that this has been a, a, a almost a dream for anybody fighting cancer that we could do this. and it, and blessedly we've been able to do that. What uh, scientists have found is that there are certain signals, uh, there are certain proteins on uh, cells in the body that can turn off the immune system, and that cancer cells have found a way to mimic those signals. 
so the cancer cell's defense is to turn off those immune cells that uh, can attack it and kill it. What these drugs do, these so-called T-cell checkpoint inhibitors, uh, and there's two main classes drugs targeting PD-1 and PD-L1 and drugs targeting uh, CTLA-4, these drugs can take away the ability of the cancer cell to uh, negate your immune system, and then the, your immune system uh, can kill that cancer cell. These drugs are fundamentally different from uh, a chemotherapy or a target therapy. Remember, those drugs themselves kill the cancer cell. This is different. These drugs, in essence, rev up your own immune system. They unlock your immune system to kill the cancer cell. It's kind of what we always wanted to do. There's at least six of these drugs approved now, and they're approved in 10 different cancers. They're probably getting their most wide use in lung cancer, but you know the names of these are uh, well-known to you probably if you watch television. Uh, nivolumab, pembrolizumab, atezolizumab, dervalumab, bevelumab, and semiplumab. Uh, these are drugs that are FDA-approved for a whole variety of cancers and are very, very commonly used. Who gets these drugs? Well, we, we still are learning about characteristics of uh, cancer cells and characteristics of tumors that would define who uh, would be best suited by these drugs. And our testing for this, unfortunately, is, is far from perfect. So while we can get uh, hints of some patients more likely to benefit from these drugs, and the tests that are done is something called PDL1 testing on tumor tissue. Uh, there's another test called tumor mutation burden, uh, also done on tumor tissue or in the uh, tumoral DNA in the blood, and another test of tumor tissue called microsatellite instability MSI. When you have these characteristics and you have them strongly manifested, it means that these medicines uh, will uh, work even better. The other thing that we found is that these, cell, these drugs can work with other treatments. They can work with chemotherapies. They can work with and following radiation. Uh, and more and more now we're testing them before or after surgery. So they, they complement the other therapies we have. They work in a totally different way and, and enhance our overall ability to uh, fight cancer. The other amazing thing, and this has happened in a raft of cancers, the most common one uh, that has been described is in melanoma, and we're going to hear about that in a second. Even people with far advanced forms of melanoma that had spread throughout the body can, uh, by any uh, standard, be cured by these therapies. And that's just an amazing finding. Uh, treat cancers that just a few years ago could not be cured. Suddenly, we can talk about cure. We've seen that, I think, most robustly in melanoma. More to come on that. But we've also seen it with uh, lung cancer as well. A couple words about COVID-19. Um, this is an uh, unbelievable crisis. Uh, I, I, I don't, don't want to underestimate that. And for folks fighting cancer, it has become an additional obstacle in their care. Uh, for everybody fighting cancer, you had a plan to fight your cancer. You met with your healthcare team, you came up with a plan to fight, and you executed that plan. Suddenly, COVID has been an impediment to making that plan go forward. It's been harder to get to institutions, it's been harder to get testing, it's been harder to get treatment. All those things have gotten into the way of your cancer care. And that is the struggle 
uh, that we have right now to try to maintain that plan of care to use immunotherapy and all the other tools that we have to fight your cancer as we planned, as we agreed, and now we got COVID in the middle. So I, I think the, the, the quick answer here is to, to uh, more and more connect with your healthcare team, uh, learn all you can about COVID. Um, one thing that has happened and helps us get around this is the ability of using telemedicine. Uh, our institution went from zero telemedicine visits in February to a thousand a day, a thousand a day. So that gives you an opportunity to directly interact with your physicians and other health care team members to help come up with plans uh, to do this and fight COVID as well as fighting your cancer. The, the big issue for us now though is to maintain that same intensity of care that we all agreed upon at the start of your illness in this COVID environment. So do everything you can to isolate uh, work with your healthcare team to stay as safe as possible. Uh, I, I'm not going to talk about clinical trials today. Time is, has run out on me. But I just do want to just re remember that clinical trials provide you another option. In addition to everything else I've mentioned, all the different kinds of therapies we've had, clinical trials are another way to help fight your cancer, maybe in a way that is you know, totally different or an improved form of the treatments we have. So please be open to discussing clinical trials with your healthcare team. Always ask the healthcare team if there's a clinical trial available for you. And please remember, a clinical trial can be appropriate at any point in your illness. It's not only for cases where there isn't another option available. It might be a better option even at the start of therapy. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That was outstanding. Just a wonderful presentation, um, and it's so informative and actually and comprehensive. So. Phenomenal. Thank you. Um, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Gregory Daniels. Dr. Daniels is a professor of medicine, UC San Diego Morris Cancer Center. And Dr. Daniels is going to be addressing the emerging role of immunotherapy in the context of, you know, of COVID-19, examples of immunotherapy and prevention, treatment and recurrence prevention of cancer, the role of vaccines, and he'll also be addressing immunotherapy in the context of melanoma. He is a melanoma expert and clinical trial updates. It is my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels. Thank you, Carolyn, and um, thank you, everybody, for being on the call. And I will um, pick up um, and emphasize some of the things that Dr. Chris just um, spoke about as far as the immune therapies, because one thing about the immune therapies are that they absolutely overlap between tumor types. And while the response may vary between a melanoma patient and a lung cancer patient, um, we're using the same tools and going through the same uh, lessons of applying these um, treatments. <clears throat> and in the context of COVID-19 or the SARS-2 virus, uh, how is this impacting uh, care? Well, how is it not impacting care? Um, so unfortunately, we're probably all on information overload um, as we're being flooded with more information on on SARS-2 and, and how it's impacting uh, the world around us. And it's changing daily. And we're learning um, about the impacts on patients daily. Uh, for example, um, recently it was, it was noted, I think in the last day or two, publication in the New England Journal about blood clots in this virus. 
Well, unfortunately for some cancer patients, blood clots aren't a stranger because uh, cancer patients are at more risk. So that goes along with um, what was reported at the American Association of Cancer Research um, recently where data was presented out of China showing that not only were cancer patients apparently more susceptible to developing COVID-19, which is that clinical syndrome from the infection, um, but they were at higher risk for developing complications from that. So now all of a sudden um, within the cancer community, as Dr. Chris was saying, we have to incorporate a new risk into that discussion of um, uh, risk benefits for all our therapies. And, and yet we're, we're on the fly defining what that risk is for a particular person. So um, places are, we're one of them, um, a lot of places are doing this, setting up data databases to track outcomes for patients uh, with cancer and without cancer, exposed and not exposed to the virus, and trying to bring up to date not just these anecdotal reports, but get some, some better understanding of how to apply these risks. So in melanoma, um, one of our best therapies for skin cancer and melanoma, it's um, essentially a very old immune therapy. We call it surgery. Uh, we, we cut it out, and for a lot of patients, that's um, the last therapy that they need for their particular disease. But in the, in the era of COVID-19, and we're trying to put out a surgical plan for a patient, uh, we have to ask, well, one plan is an outpatient uh, procedure. The other plan where we look at lymph nodes might be an inpatient procedure. How much better information are we getting from that inpatient procedure? And, and what are the risks of, of exposing that person in, in this particular time? The risk will also vary by location. You know, if you um, live in a low prevalence area or a high prevalence area, the availability of testing, uh, the availability of the supportive uh, infrastructure around you um, all factor into some of these decisions. And so we're starting to adjust even our surgical uh, management, at least in the short term, uh, for this. We always want to make sure that all essential, urgent cancer treatments are continued, um, but we have to factor in this uh, extra risk. Um, unfortunately, right now, we're, we're, we're working with our best guesses on actually what that risk is for patients. For melanoma, um, immune therapies um, well integrated into this tumor type. Um, We've not been a tumor type that responds very well to the old style of chemotherapies, and so immune therapies have, have always been part of it. Um, either after your, your, your melanoma has been cut out in what we call adjuvant therapy, where we use, used to use drugs like interferon and are now using drugs, as Dr. Chris mentioned, these checkpoint inhibitors, um, but we also use targeted therapies. And so in a patient coming in um, needing adjuvant therapy today, our discussion is a little different. Um, if we have two options and one's an immune therapy, and that immune therapy may have lung toxicities, um, that, that may sway us towards um, a treatment plan focused on a targeted therapy option because we see well, just, just as good a benefit, but uh, maybe today, the risk of uh, checkpoint inhibitors is a little bit more in a, 
in an adjuvant therapy option. Adjuvant therapy is that, that treatment that's given to a, a cured patient, but we're trying to ensure that they um, really stay cured. Similar discussions um, involve neoadjuvant therapies. So neoadjuvant are treatments that we give before uh, surgery to try to improve the outcomes, ultimate outcomes for patients, where we expose patients to medications for one month, two months, or six months prior to surgery. And um, I would say up to a few months ago, we would consider a, con consider at least a neoadjuvant immune therapy approach in certain patients. But now I'm, I'm more reluctant to do that um, just until things calm down again and we have better knowledge on how these immune therapies may be interacting with the virus. And um, that brings us to systemic uh, treatments. Uh, Dr. Chris mentioned that um, uh, melanoma um, is one of those tumor types that have benefited really a great deal from um, this uh, renaissance of um, immune therapies. And if I have a patient who has systemic disease, measurable metastatic disease, we're still going to consider these combination immune therapies because of these great long-term results that may, may occur, but I have to have extra discussions with the patients about uh, the possible risks of, again, inflammation in the lungs, maybe a risk of blood clots, um, for uh, treatments, and that that also has been influencing timing of our treatments, and which ones which ones we're picking. Clinical trials, um, as, as mentioned, are are what academic and even community center places are are doing, and what we consider a standard of care in in, in cancer. Until we have that therapy, that is without symptoms and there's a guaranteed cure for everybody, we're going to keep pounding away at this with clinical trials. Um, unfortunately, welcome COVID-19 to um, the complexity of a clinical trial. So some places have decided that currently um, they're not going to enroll new patients to clinical trials, that certain aspects of the clinical trials of biomarker development are put on hold. So we've had to figure out how to do remote consenting uh, for patients, remote monitoring of the clinical trials, um, because we have to disengage from a lot of the contacts before that we were doing and try to figure out which ones we absolutely need and which ones we don't. So it's it's been complicated, but we've been able to um, keep open approximately 90% of our therapeutic studies um, during this time. That's going to vary, uh, again, with location. We're out in California and currently, thankfully, in an area that has a uh, low endemic rate of uh, viral infection right now. Um, so I, I would say that um, pace of discovery is continuing. Um, we've had to adjust um, somewhat to the uh, virus and how we're treating patients. Um, I also um, agree that there have been a few quote, good things, if one can say them, uh, coming out of the virus, and that is um, the, the access to telemedicine. I spoke with a patient this morning that was four hours away. If this was two months ago, she would have had to have gone, gone in her car, driven out here, and, and had a discussion with me. And she sat on her patio and was sipping a drink, and we had a nice discussion. And I hope that that part of how medicine's changing with this infection continues and we're able to, when appropriate, do telemedicine. And also, 
our understanding of an immune response in cancer, I think will spill over and help on the immune response that's happening in, in patients suffering from COVID-19. So it's a very dynamic time. Um, thanks for hanging in there on this uh, information overload time that we live in. Hopefully things will settle down and I'll turn it back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. That was really excellent and, and very thoughtful in terms of um, the issues that um, are being confronted and how you're dealing with them and how you are moving forward. Um, so thank you um, very much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, our next speaker is Ahmad Sawas, and Dr. Sawas is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Experimental Therapeutics, Center of Lymphoid Malignancies, Division of Experimental Therapeutics, Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, New York Presbyterian Hospital. And Dr. Sawas will be addressing the role of immunotherapy in treating lymphoma in the context of COVID-19, understanding immunotherapy or treatment side effects, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about clinical trial updates. It's really my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sawas. Uh, thank you, Caroline. Um, I hope everybody's healthy and is doing well. Uh, definitely, uh, it's a challenging time, as both Dr. Chris and Dr. Daniels have mentioned. Uh, and nowhere has immunotherapy impacted uh, patient treatment in cancer as much as has does in lymphoma. And my colleagues have focused in their discussions on checkpoint inhibitors specifically and their role. And other than Hodgkin's lymphoma, checkpoint inhibitors have had a limited role in the treatment of lymphomas in general. And part of that is that checkpoint inhibitors utilize the activity of T-cells against the cancer cells. And that has worked very well in Hodgkin's lymphoma and has resulted in a significant change in the prognosis and the overall survival for these patients. However, in B-cell malignancies and T-cell malignancies, B-cell lymphomas, non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, uh, we haven't seen that effect, uh, specifically for the single agents and potentially in the future with combinations with specific epigenetic therapies. And these are therapies that change the way genes are expressed in cells. Some therapies, uh, examples of that therapy are hypomethylating agents like azacitidine uh, or uh, decitidine. And other ones are similar, like uh, the HDAC inhibitors, like Hormidepsin, Vernistat, Pobinistat, and others. Uh, potentially, some of these combinations may have and may vitalize the effect of uh, checkpoint inhibitors in the treatment of lymphomas. Thankfully, there's other types of uh, immunotherapies that are still very active and effective in treatment of B-cell malignancies specifically. And I'll mention uh, specifically the anti-CD19 antibody deficitimab. And that's developed by a company called Morphosis, and we've seen uh, combination studies of this deficitimab, which is an antibody that targets CD19, which is universally expressed in all B-cell malignancies in combination with lalidomide, otherwise known as Revlimid, 
showing prolonged progression-free survival and high response rates in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And they're taking uh, these, uh, this compound, map to regulatory studies as well to upfront studies and their development, which provides great uh, access and great hope for many of our uh, B-cell lymphoma patients. Uh, also, another uh, aspect of antibody drug development is the antibody drug conjugates, and Dr. Chris has uh, mentioned that in his discussion. However, in uh, lymphoma, we've had Atcetris, Brintoximab uh, Vidotin, that has been very active and prognostic and life-changing for Hodgkin's lymphoma patients. We've had similar other developments and now we see the emergence of ABCT402 for B-cell malignancies and ABC301, uh, another antibody drug conjugate that's being developed both in Hodgkin's lymphoma and T-cell malignancies. We also have the bispecific antibodies. These are antibodies that have, if you wish, two heads, two targets at the same time, and they're able to target the lymphoma or the cancer cell as well as target uh, an immune cell, like a T cell uh, or an NK cell. A uh, drug that's approved in that category is blintumumab, and blintumumab is able to target CD19 on B cells, as well as uh, CD3 on T cells. These are your own immune cells in the body. And it brings these cells together. The drug itself has no effect other than bringing these cells together, and as a result of that, it results in activation of the T cell, your own immune system, against the cancer. And this drug is approved in BALL, that's Philadelphia negative. There has been studies of it in diffuse large B cell lymphoma as well as in mantis cell lymphoma with some initial encouraging results. But the way the drug is given and because of some of its toxicities, the toxicities associated with it make it a little bit challenging to study in a broader range of, of patients. But we're seeing second and third generations of these bispecifics that are becoming very promising, specifically an antibody by Regeneron Therapeutics that targets CD20, the same target as rituximab, and also engages the T cells through the CD3 receptor. And there have been multiple presentations showing high response rates and prolonged response rates in those patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma who are ineligible for transplant or failed uh, after autologous stem cell transplant showing great activity. And we've seen interchange between this technology and this approach of antibodies with the next uh, category that I'll discuss uh, called the CAR-T therapy. So patients who've received CAR-T therapy were able to receive the bispecific and vice versa where patients received the bispecific and then received the CAR-T therapy. So, I'm moving a little bit quickly because there's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, so I don't want to miss talking about the cellular adaptive therapies. What this is, is to take your own immune cells and weaponize them in a way that they do not miss the cancer, that they recognize the cancer, that they attack the cancer and eradicate it. And in a way, it's a living therapy. The way they do this is uh, they collect and harvest T cells or the cells of interest at this point in time from the patient. And they take it to a special facility where they induce the cells 
by specific mechanisms, and we're not going to go into the details of that, to become able to recognize a specific antigen, a specific marker on the cancer cells. And they're able to expand them and increase the number of these cells to an appropriate amount. And then at a certain point in time after preparing the patient and preparing their body to receive this therapy, sometimes via, mostly via chemotherapy, uh, they're able to reintroduce the patient's own T cells after modification back into the patient. And what that does is it results in an immune response by, with, by, by which these T cells, these CARs, what we call them, chimeric antigen receptor T cells, are able to recognize, for example, CD19 and eradicate the B cells. And if you uh, or anybody who's following uh, immunotherapeutics and cancer development in general are probably aware of them. And uh, there are now two uh, chimeric antigen receptor T cell uh, products that are approved in the United States for the treatment uh, of, diff uh, of both diffuse large B cell lymphoma. Uh, one, I'll mention the, the commercial names for simplicity, uh, Yaskarda by um, uh, Kite Therapeutics is now part of Gilead, as well as Chimera, which uh, is um, uh, a product of uh, Novartis. And Chimera also has an, an indication in DALL B cell acute lymphocytic leukemia uh, and, uh, and involves young adults. And uh, this has been revolutionizing for many of these patients, especially in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, as it took patients that had uh, very little in the way of therapeutic options and patients with very aggressive diseases and was able to show uh, a good and sustained response rate uh, in these patients uh, that really made it a breakthrough therapy. And it's not stopping there. We're seeing second and third generations of these chimeric antigen receptors. What we're seeing is the first version, if you wish, version 1.0, the first attempt. And in the years to come, we're probably going to have much improved versions that have uh, the ability to detect more than one antigen, more than one marker on the cancer cells, as well as their ability to integrate with other molecular and immune therapies to allow for better safety and better tolerability of these uh, medications. Uh, other cells are also being explored, including natural killer cells uh, and off-the-shelf off cell, cellular therapies so by which the patient won't have to donate and have their T cells or NK cells uh, harvested before uh, receiving the therapy. And this is all very exciting and very interesting because it really provides a lot of hope. And it's not no longer limited to diffuse large B cell lymphoma. This is being tested in all different types of lymphoma as well as in solid tumors. Uh, part of what I wanted to also discuss with you is understanding the side effects of many of these therapies. And one thing that I wanted to mention is uh, really in the current climate and current situation, as my colleagues and as you are aware, uh, COVID-19 has really affected patients, especially those who are at risk uh, the elderly, and those who are immunocompromised. And amongst the cancer patients, definitely patients with hematologic malignancy, especially leukemias and multiple myelomas, are at 
specifically increased risk. What's very interesting is uh, some of the findings that um, have been found in the COVID patients, especially in terms of the lung problems that they develop, are similar to some of the side effects that some of the immune therapies can cause patients, uh, which is something called pneumonitis, an inflammation of the lung. And many of the strategies that were used to treat and modify uh, the disease progression of the pneumonitis that happened as a result of immunotherapies is now being employed, and there are studies underway to treat uh, COVID-19 patients. So there is an interchange of knowledge between the different fields, if you wish, even in this situation. Uh, definitely, you know, the best thing you could do as a patient in the current climate of COVID-19 is not to get COVID-19 as much as you can. And that's why, you know, observing social distancing, observing good hygiene, observing hand washing. Unfortunately, there is a lot of information out there, and it's too early really to say uh, what is effective against COVID-19 and what is not. What is the natural history of COVID-19? Uh, what's the reinfection rate? What does immunity look like? I think these are all early questions uh, to answer and to address. Uh, but everybody's working very hard to try to figure this problem out and being very well prepared. And I think communicating with the healthcare professionals, uh, with your doctors about your symptoms, about uh, 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 about uh, what's uh, needed uh, to treat uh, in case you develop any symptoms is very important. And having uh, a plan uh, to address this becomes very important. Uh, and if you're in a clinical trial or uh, thinking about a clinical trial, I think it's important to ask your care team about how to proceed with a clinical trial in this climate. Uh, we have introduced, and as Dr. Daniels has mentioned, uh, people, people are looking at how to conduct clinical trials today. We have uh, looked at modifying and changing some of the protocols to allow patients who need therapy to stay on therapy or in start on therapy, but it is definitely a very challenging situation. And I look forward to your questions and answers. I don't want to take all the time. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Salas. That was really outstanding. And we're now actually going to move directly into questions, because I know we started a bit late, so I want to be sure that we get to your questions. So I'm going to ask Sonia to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And why don't we take as many questions as possible? So, Sonia, could you um, explain to the audience how to queue up for questions? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then one. And so we have some really interesting questions from our online participants. So I'm going to actually. Um, uh, so, um, so here's an excellent question, um, and this I'm going to give this to Dr. Chris to start with. Where can I find clinical trials that include immunotherapy in my area? So different parts of the country, 
and I suppose world to some extent, but if you could address that. Yeah, so um, uh, unfortunately there isn't a one uh, kind of clearinghouse that is uh, absolutely up to date uh, to get clinical trials. I think the best place to start is clinicaltrials.gov, uh, and it, it once you're in there, it, it gives it lets you uh, give it characteristics about your uh, illness and can help uh, get your um, get you pointed into trials that might be relevant for you. I think the other thing you, know, you can do is contact uh, uh, cancer centers, comprehensive cancer centers in your area. I think any uh, NCI designated comprehensive cancer center, if you call and ask about availability of trials for your illness, they'd be able to direct you to uh, a person there that could uh, answer your question. Excellent. And um, our next question for Dr. Um, for Dr. Daniels. Um, so, when does a doctor know that immunotherapy has worked and that I am done? With I guess with treatment. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so we're it, all it smiling to that one. Not, not <laughs> easy question. These are, these are good questions, but they're not easy. <laughs> yeah, I, hopefully you heard. I, I, I preceded that with a hmm. Um, because there, the answer to that is very complicated, and it, it really depends on on what you're treating. So, for example, we give immune therapy in the adjuvant setting. That's a defined period, so you're done when you're done with that defined period. In melanoma, it's one year of treatment. Um, because we don't have anything to watch other than, of course, how the patients are doing and if their cancer comes back. Um, but so that, that's a defined period. The other times um, when we're treating measurable disease, we'll watch the disease with different tools, CT scans and PET scans. And then, um, you know, depending on how the tumor is responding, ideally, you get a what we term a complete response that's the scan has turned to normal. There the data starts to get a little um, uh, incomplete as to um, how long to continue therapies. Again, I'll rely on melanoma for a second, um, where we give uh, combination immune therapies. We, you know, hopefully um, in all patients, but unfortunately it's just a subset, we'll see everything disappear. And we scratch our heads about, well, okay, do we continue a maintenance therapy? Um, if the patients have tolerated treatment very well, they're doing well on therapy, a lot of patients are comfortable continuing for six months, 12 months um, of a maintenance treatment. So it is a difficult question. Um, it's gonna depend on, on what the endpoints are that you've worked out with your physician um, for it and how you're tolerating treatment as to how long to continue these immune therapies. Excellent. Thank you. And um, thank you very much. And a question for Dr. Sawas, um, specific to lymphoma. Um, I would like to learn about the use of rituxan. Should I relapse from follicular lymphoma? Uh, sure. I mean, uh, the use of rituximab, that was the question? Yes. Yes. Uh, so uh, rituximab, as you know, is an anti-CD20. And uh, depending on how, what's the period of relapse, so generally speaking, if somebody receives rituximab in the frontline setting uh, and they didn't relapse for at least 12 months after, uh, there, is an, uh, there is an understanding that rituximab can be reintroduced 
to control the disease. If it's less than 12 months, uh, then it's unlikely to do so, uh, unlikely to be as effective. Uh, it depends also how the frontline treatment was constructed. Uh, if it included rituximab plus chemotherapy, then likely a follow-up with rituximab single agent is not likely to be as effective. There is other agents that target CD20 that are very effective in uh, follicular lymphoma that can be used upfront or in the relapse setting uh, after uh, progression on uh, frontline uh, rituximab. I mentioned specifically ubuntuzumab, uh, which uh, is uh, developed by Roche Genentech, and there are several studies uh, that showed its efficacy in the relapse setting uh, in combination uh, with botulinidomide, uh, which is revlimid, as well as bendamustine. Uh, uh, so these are different options that can be used in the situation where uh, you're trying to focus on minimal toxicity using anti-CD20 and avoiding uh, combination chemotherapy uh, uh, in follicular lymphoma. Thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Um, Chris, um, and this will be our next to last question. Um, how will immunotherapy affect my daily life? Will I be able to work, exercise, and perform my usual activities? You could address this in a general way, Dr. Um, Chris. So, um, again, I'll, I'll speak about the commonly used drugs, uh, like uh, Olimab or Pembrolizumab. Uh, uh, now, for most patients, uh, the drug has very little effect on lifestyle. Uh, again, people that have had immune treatments and have had chemotherapies you know, very quickly remark about how much easier it is. So while there are very significant side effects, and those of you that watch television you know, hear the litany of them every time those uh, nice people uh, are out there playing with their grandchildren in the background, it's all the side effects. They really affect only a minority of patients. So I, w I would put the number you know, 90% of people have side effects that in no way um, interfere with their ability to do all the things they normally do, to work, to, you know, run their family, run their business, uh, go on vacation. Uh, that last 10%, though, some of them are side effects that require a treatment, like rashes, for example, and then there's some very, very serious side effects uh, that would require uh, a, a lot of treatment and, and a lot of medical intervention, but the average person's life is uh, very close to normal. It's part of the dream of immunotherapy. And I guess this last question is really for everyone to just comment on, just because it, it's hard, since it's on everyone's mind in any way, um, to just comment on what is how um, healthcare um, delivery um, has tried to. Uh, implement things to minimize uh, people living with cancer's exposure to COVID-19. And, and by that, I actually do mean things like the, um, the telehealth appointments, which I think sometimes people don't totally understand. So if we could just spend a little time with each of you commenting on that, because I think for some people I know that we've talked to, it's, it seems like a bit of a mystery. They don't really know what will be involved. And so just to clarify, and also kinds of questions people might want to be prepared. So it is like, it is a, it's a real visit. And it's really, um, and what are the things that are on their mind? So um, do you want to start with that, Dr. Chris, and then I'll have Dr. Daniels and then Dr. Salas um, conclude with that, just so we can be sure to address this. Uh, 
Yeah, so, uh, uh, you know, COVID is by and large passed from, from person to person. So ways to uh, maintain contact and maintain the intensity of a relationship and not have face-to-face -face contact are one way to stop the spread of COVID. So what we've done in uh, healthcare is we've tried very hard to cut down on the number of visits, uh, cut down on the number of people that a person would be uh, uh, exposed to during a visit, uh, and um, also uh, use a video. Uh, so, uh, so for example, if a patient is, is coming for treatment, I may interact with them by a video uh, rather than with a face-to-face -face visit, even though I'm in the same building. Uh, so again, we maintain contact, we make sure that we all understand what each other's issues are that day, but we don't have face-to-face -face contact. Excellent, thank you. And Dr. Daniels, do you want to add to that? Yeah, um, I, um, those are our general strategies too. You know, I'll just comment that we also recognize that, you know, cancer care is really not an elective thing. It's not that you, the patient, really enjoy going to the cancer center anyways for random visits. You know, so when we decrease exposure and decrease touch points, those are all usually pretty important um, contacts. And it's, it's been a big challenge. Um, for example, at our center, we have a no visitor policy. Um, and that's really tough um, for patients to come in. So we have um, support on the phone. So family will phone in during the visit and have them on speakerphone. Um, we normally have uh, social work. We'll see the patients. Well, they're not seeing the patients, and, and having that connection is really important. Um, so it's a, it is a struggle. Um, thankfully, there are places like Cancer Care that step in and also provide supportive services, and uh, Dr. Messner will outline those in a minute. Thank you so much. Thank you. And um, Dr. Silas, do you want to uh, add to this as well? Sure. I mean, I concur with both uh, Dr. Chris and Dr. Daniels. Really, we're trying to prevent any of our patients uh, from contracting this viral infection, and we try to do it by observing social distancing uh, and decreasing the risk. And part of what has happened is these televisits and video conferencing to try to decrease uh, the risk of patients who do not have to come in and be seen and be evaluated uh, to uh, to that risk. Uh, I mean, definitely, there is a compromise in terms of a decrease in our ability to assess patients the way we'd like, but it's a risk-benefit ratio. And for patients who have to come in, you know, we're practicing a lot of social distancing, a lot of uh, uh, efforts to wear masks, uh, even for asymptomatic and non-infected uh, healthcare workers uh, to, in case we're asymptomatically carrying the virus, that we don't give it to our patients. We're encouraging our patients to do the same. We're doing testing, uh, a lot of testing for many of our patients. Uh, so any of our patients that are required to go to the infusion center or to be admitted, we're doing we're testing them for COVID-19. If they're positive, there are specific precautions and specific procedures that are followed at that point in time to get them treatment where they're isolated from other patients so they don't infect the patients or infect the staff. So a lot of it is about prevention and education and everybody, I think, is trying to do what they can uh, to keep 
ourselves and our patients safe and treat them in the safest way possible. Thank you. I want to thank all of our speakers. You've really been uh, phenomenal. Actually, uh, it's, this has been an amazing call and an amazing time in history um, when you think about it. Um, you know, today being April 29th, 2020, so we're, it's all relevant to what's happening right now. It's this information that keeps emerging, so here we are. Um, I actually want to thank our speakers. And I also want to thank those of you who asked such really great questions. I know there are many more questions in queue, so I do want to go over with you First of all, how to get your questions answered. And I do want to mention that you'll be getting um, an evaluation of the program. And probably by Monday, you'll get an evaluation. The evaluation is not only an evaluation, although we definitely like your feedback, but it also includes all the resources that were mentioned by any of the speakers during the program itself. Um, you know, any websites or, or telephone numbers that were given out during the program. And also, um, but I do want to mention some things off right now. We recognize that your healthcare team, of course, are the best places to take your questions. They know you the best. They actually, um, for those of you who even asked a question today or those of you who actually heard a question asked or have a question, take it to your healthcare team. But I also recognize that many of you like very much to do some research on your own before you ask your healthcare team. So you have a more informed question. So listening to a program like this is, is a wise thing to do. However, um, in terms of the websites you go to, you want them to be credible. So we have mentioned to you um, the National Cancer Institute um, as a wonderful resource to go to um, for information. Many of the National Comprehensive Cancer Centers, the National NCI designated centers, also have information for you. But I must say, the National Cancer Institute, their um, their call center, is a wonderful place to get medical information. And all of you have different um, types of cancers and different issues, and we partner with many different groups. So we will send you some of their um, links as well, because those organizations have tremendous information that you may want to access as well. Um, we also recognize that um, that many of you, there are moments when you feel alone. Now, it is quite normal to feel alone sometimes. And with social distancing, it has highlighted that feeling of sometimes feeling alone. And so we want you to know that although it is normal to feel alone and it's particularly normal to feel alone in this era of social distancing, of of sort of really not being able to um, be in a large group of your family or friends, never, and we recommend that you, that is not something we want you to do. We want you to, to practice social distancing very much. Nevertheless, I also want you to know that you're part of a community of support. Many organizations are out there, and I think it's been mentioned, um, you can, of course, join a support group. Um, Cancer Care offers a number of services. You can join a support group. You can talk to one of our oncology social workers. You can call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 and speak with one of our oncology social workers. And they not only can provide you with support and counseling services and guidance, they also offer, we have financial assistance. Some of you may have practical and financial assistance. We have COVID-specific financial assistance as well, and financial assistance for different types of cancers as well. So there's all different types of resources you can access from us. There also are things called copay foundations. Cancer Care has one. There are many of them, and also many organizations that offer these services as well, and we will give you a listing of this so that you know that there are places you can go to 
You can call them on the phone, visit their website for our international participants, and really um, get resources that can assist you. So I very much appreciate all of you being on the call today. Um, I hope that you have learned a great deal from being on the call today. I hope you will take what you've learned back to your treating healthcare team and see how it best applies to you. And um, I, I just want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all very much for, for being with us today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.